A Miami-Dade commissioner is facing criminal charges after a corruption probe. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Wilkin Brutus. A Miami-Dade commissioner is facing accusations of a conspiracy to commit unlawful compensation. We're talking with the Miami Herald reporter to discuss the fallout. Also, after Governor Ron DeSantis removed members of the Broward School Board, the majority of the board are now his appointees. What does this mean for the county and schools moving forward? Finally, the historic Gulfstream Hotel in Lake Worth Beach opened in 1925 and has been vacant for nearly two decades. Its return may bring hope to this unique city in Palm Beach County. All of that today on the South Florida Roundup after the news. I'm Wilkin Brutus, and welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Earlier this week, Miami-Dade Commissioner Joe Martinez was arrested for two felony charges linked to alleged unlawful compensation and conspiracy to commit unlawful compensation. An arrest warrant revealed he is accused of accepting $15,000 to sponsor a law that would have helped a shopping plaza that had been repeatedly hit with fines for code violations. This was more than five years ago. The commissioner also faces a potential suspension from office from Governor Ron DeSantis. A temporary replacement on the county board would be appointed if this occurs. Add your voice to the conversation. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. You can also tweet us at WLRN. Joining us now is David Avaye. He covers crime and courts for the Miami Herald. David, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Now, David, take us through the charges levied against Commissioner Martinez. What what exactly is unlawful compensation and uh, how does that apply here? So unlawful compensation is basically sort of like pay for play, right? You're, as, a, as an elected official, you're not allowed to accept payment uh, directly from parties that, that you are trying to help, right? So it's, it's different than bribery. Okay, it's... Um, but uh, but sort of the same concept, right? You as an elected official should not getting paid be getting paid extra to do your official duties. So in this case, Commissioner Martinez is accused of basically uh, getting money for helping uh, a couple of businessmen who are involved in a shopping center out in the uh, in the West State area um, by passing legislation that would directly benefit him. So um, it's not you know it's not your prototypical. You know, money stuffed in a bag, found in, uh, found you know behind the couch or anything like that. It's a little bit more of a circumstantial financial crime, but uh, but it certainly is uh, enough evidence there that the prosecutors believe that they had probable cause to issue an arrest warrant. Right. So effectively, a conflict of interest there. Of course, what was the legislation? Was it ever passed? No. So it wasn't passed, and and that's one of the the intricacies of the unlawful compensation. Uh, statute is that it doesn't actually the benefit doesn't actually have to come through it has to be the attempt to come through right so what it is is there was a shopping center in west miami-dade um where there's a supermarket called extra supermarket and they had six cargo containers behind the shopping center um you know big big cargo containers and it was being used mostly as inventory for the store right but under code for miami-dade you can only have one for that size property, okay? So they were racking up fines and racking up fines and you know they knew Joe Martinez, so once he got back into office, these guys had paid him um, money and the prosecutors believed that that money was to 
um, basically go toward toward uh, getting this legislation passed that would allow for more cargo containers to be allowed on this property. And and so the office of the inspector general and the state attorney's office have been working on this case since about 2016, 2017. Is that what tipped them off? Uh, is that what tipped them off? They said it was an of financial investigations um, into uh, Commissioner Martinez. There was actually a, a separate but sort of related case where there was a campaign donors restaurant owner out in Hialeah that ends up, um, you know, making some straw donations to the commissioner. The commissioner wasn't accused of any wrongdoing there, but that stemmed from reviewing all of um, the commissioner's um, uh, financial, uh, you know, campaign statements and all that. So, um, yeah, I mean, this was something, it, it took a while. It took a while to get there. I think COVID certainly um, kind of delayed things by, by a couple of years, but these financial cases oftentimes take, take a long time to do. Yeah, it takes a while. And how, how did they piece together the information and communications in this case? Well, a lot of it was subpoenaing uh, bank records, subpoenaing uh, text messages and emails and legislation. It's, you know, it's a circumstantial case. So it's not it's not one of these ones where there's a smoking gun. You don't have the guy who owns a supermarket saying, yes, I expected to have um, this benefit for the three separate checks that I gave him. Right. But um, it's kind of one where if you're the prosecutors, you're going to say, you know, this is this is common sense, ladies and gentlemen. You know, this is he's getting this money as uh, uh, as he's doing this thing for them. Um, sort of, you know, they kind of piece it all together in a circumstantial way. So it'll be interesting. It'll be an interesting case to see if it, if it ever goes to trial and, and what's uh, what's made of it. Right. And, and David, what have we heard from Commissioner Martinez and his camp about the allegations and uh, the arrest? So the interesting thing was they actually um, arranged for him to surrender. He knew he was under investigation. He had done a couple sworn interviews in years past about it. So he knew this wasn't anything that was un, 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 uh, unknown to him. But um, they said, look, we're charging you, a re- you know, come surrender on Tuesday. And he sort of launched a preemptive strike, you know, blasting it as politically motivated and um, and saying this had to do with Kathy's the state attorney, Catherine Fernandez Rundle's stance on 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 the May on the upcoming sheriff's election, which um, Joe Martinez is, is considering running for. And he sort of cast himself as the leading contender. Um, and so sort of this preemptive strike of, of this big, long public statement. Um, and uh, but, you know, it didn't matter. He, he had to turn himself in. He went to jail for a few hours and now he's awaiting trial. Wow. So so he's saying it's, it was politically motivated. Uh, that's the claim he's putting out there. He also claimed that this happened when he was a private citizen and not in office. Is there any merit to that statement? Well, that's going to be the defense. Right. So so there was. um in 2013, he had helped the guy who owns a supermarket find the investor that helped them buy the supermarket, right? And he ended up getting $20,000 for um, that sort of introduction, right? I guess sort of like a referral fee kind of thing. So he's claiming, oh, this $15,000 uh, years after the fact was sort of like an extra payment for that, right? And so that's going to be the rub, right? The, ju- the prosecutors will have to convince a jury like, you know, hey, use your common sense. Is that really what was going on here? But that's going to be the claim. He's basically going to say, "Now nah, this is just leftover payment from from way back when." Hmm. Now he's a former Miami-Dade police lieutenant. Uh, any response from the police department about this particular case? 
Uh, no, I mean, I don't think they would really have a dog in, in the fight. I mean, it's not, it wasn't a case that was investigated by the police department. Um, it was investigated by the office of the inspector general. Um, the, uh, now the PBA, which is the police benevolent association, the, uh, the, the powerful police union, you know, they've sort of signed on to say, yeah, we're, we're, we're supporting him and as, as he fights this charge, but you know, exactly what that's going to entail in the future, other than just saying, yeah, we support him, um, remains to be seen. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think there's going to be a lot of political, political, uh, undercurrents as this thing moves forward and we get closer to, um, the possibility of a sheriff's race in a couple of years. I'm Wilkin Brutus. You're listening to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm speaking with Miami Herald reporter David Ovalle about a Miami-Dade commissioner arrested for felony charges. Uh, David, if suspended by Governor Ron DeSantis, what effect would this have on the commission and the county? No, I'm not sure politically or practically speaking it would have that much of a difference. I mean, he's a Republican. He's, you know, I guess you would say he's he's considered them on the more conservative side, right? So it's not going to change the makeup of the county commission because the, you know, the governor DeSantis is a Republican. He'd presumably um, appoint someone in that in that same, um, you know, vein. Um, so I don't think it would change that much. Um, and Frank, it's you know it's supposed to be a nonpartisan. Um, thing anyways so it's not like uh, it's not like it's so overtly political anyways but certainly there are different factions in the ways and all of that so um, yeah I mean I think that's the key question is what what is he what is the governor going to do because this is coming straight off a few days prior he actually suspended four um, Broward County School Board members Democrats in a, in a heavily Democratic county um, basically for incompetence and they haven't been charged with anything right so you know, I think it, it might look bad if he doesn't if he doesn't do likewise for someone who's actually fa- facing charges for something related to his office hmm. and that resulted in criminal charges. Wow. Now, now, would something different happen if Commissioner Martinez decided to resign instead or, or just the same if he were to be suspended? Yeah, I mean, I think I think they would still have to an appointment. Uh, someone would still have to be appointed, and I suppose they could have a special election, um, and ultimately the seat would be would be filled. But I don't think he's going to to just resign. I think he's going to fight it. He sort of indicated that this is something that he's he's going to fight, and that uh, and that he you know wants to you know because if he resigns, then imagine if he's going to run for sheriff in a couple of years, that how, how that's not going to look good. So he wants to exonerate himself. Um, what are the possibilities of him exonerating himself? Does the case look like it may tilt towards his direction or like how deep are the, the sort of evidence towards him? You know, it's it's really hard to say in in Miami-Dade County, because ultimately, if this is a case that doesn't resolve itself with a plea deal, it's going to be up to either a judge um, or a jury. And frankly, juries in Miami can be very unpredictable right i mean i've covered i've covered cases that i thought no way in in no way at all that this person that this public uh, official gets convicted and they get you know uh, convicted likewise the other way so juries in miami-dade can be very very um uh fickle and it's really going to depend and frankly if this case ever goes to trial it's not going to go to trial for a couple of years so i wouldn't i wouldn't hold your breath for for it to happen anytime soon Right. And for folks who want to continue to pay attention to the case, what, what's next for the case? Uh, well, next, you're going to have um, the arraignment, which is going to be later this month. And that's just, you know, sort of a formality. You'll have him pleading not guilty. Um, and then the key thing, I think, for us at the Herald is um, that's when a lot of the evidence in the case will end up being public. 
as released as part of the, the discovery process and then we're entitled to it as members of the public. So, you know, we'll be able to kind of fill out a little bit more of the details and, and um, you know, be able to present to the readers um, the, the different strengths and weaknesses of the case. Yeah. And, and does anything about this particular case set any precedent locally at all? Um, no, I mean, I've seen cases like this before. I mean, we famously had a, a city of Miami commissioner, Michelle Spence Jones, arrested. Not quite the same facts, but sort of in a similar similar vein. And um, she ended up getting getting up acquitted, getting acquitted. And the case that case was far weaker um, in terms of the amount of evidence. This case is, is certainly much more solid, just from my experience and having seen a lot of these cases. Um, but it is not sort of your traditional sort of FBI case where we see where you know they put an undercover informant to give bags of cash and stuff like that. It's a much more cerebral, much more um, uh, financial financial crimes type of case. And, and I'm not sure if you said it already. What what uh, is there a date for the trial? No, 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 no date for the trial just yet. And frankly, even if one gets set, it, it will be a while before this goes. You know, sometimes these things get set as placeholders. But my guess is it, w- it wouldn't happen within the next year or so. Hmm. David Ovalle covers crime and courts for the Miami Herald. Thank you so much for your time, David. Thank you. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Still to come, school board suspends and school board suspensions in Broward. What does this mean for the county going forward? Join the conversation at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. I'm Wilkin Brutus. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. After Governor Ron DeSantis removed four sitting members of the Broward School Board on the recommendation of a statewide grand jury, The majority of the board are now his appointees, and those new members were recently sworn in. It's a massive change in one of the most Democratic-leaning counties. What changes might we see? What are your thoughts on this particular story? Call us now at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. You can also tweet us at WLRN. Joining me to discuss what this means uh, for the county moving forward is WLRN education reporter Kate Payne and Anna Fusco, president of the Broward Teachers Union. Hello, Kate, and hello, Anna. Hey. Oh, Anna isn't here just yet. <laughs> hey, Kate, how are you? <laughs> I'm doing good. <laughs> it's good to see you. So, obviously, we'll, let's start with you. Uh, this is a massive change in one of the state's most Democratic-leaning counties and the country's sixth largest school district. Um, What does this mean for the county and the schools moving forward? Yeah. So as you mentioned before, just to underscore, a majority of the board is now made up of DeSantis appointees as opposed to members who are elected by the people of Broward County. So that in and of itself is um, quite a transition. Uh, And, you know, I I think it's it's a very rare opportunity uh, to advance conservative priorities. And as you say, what is um, one of the most democratic leaning counties in the state? Um, And that's without having to win a single election. Um, It's important to say that four of these DeSantis appointees will term out in November, this November. Um, So they won't be on the board for long. um, But, uh, you know, the governor has been very clear about his own education agenda um, with school board members um, 
running alongside him, getting his endorsement, and and promising to do things like restrict how race and sexual orientation and gender identity have been talked about in schools. Um, I think it's, you know, it's a question of, of how much these appointees will align themselves with the governor after being put in place by him. Um, there are a lot of, of questions about their own approach to, to these positions because they didn't have to run and, and campaign like a typical board member. And speaking of these conservative policies, um, are the four new members promising any policy changes? So uh, right now they seem to be focused on accountability and transparency. Um, you know, the the findings of the statewide grand jury that was launched after the 2018 Parkland shooting um, is, is a big focus for them. That's why they were uh, put into these positions, um, because the governor following the recommendations of that grand jury removed their predecessors. Um, so that's that's certainly a concern for them. Um, the new chair has talked about, you know, it's it's his goal to really dig into that grand jury report, the allegations of mismanagement in the district that were identified in that, um, and to hold staff accountable, all staff accountable for, for potential wrongdoing, um, and saying that that accountability won't end with with the elected officials who were removed. And what about the other members? Uh, How are they responding to the immediate changes? Yeah, so it's been um, a shock. <laughs> it's, uh, I, I, I'll say, you know, in the words of, of one of them, you know, it was um, shocking but not surprising. We've, we've known that this grand jury report has been coming for a long time. It was initially, uh, the investigation was launched in 2019. The report itself was finalized more than a year ago, and board members have been able to review those findings. Um, and knew what was coming, but couldn't speak about it publicly um, because it's it's a secret document until it's publicly publicly released to to everyone. Um, so they they knew that this was a distinct possibility, um, but still, it's a, an incredibly quick transition for last Friday. You know, one week ago, uh, the governor removing these four sitting board members, immediately replacing them, um, you know, effective immediately. And, and now they're sworn in and, and hitting the ground running. Yeah, v- very quick, to say the least. Mm-hmm. Um, who is now in charge of the school board? Uh, was a was a chair elected? And what are the specific powers of that particular chair? Right. So the new chair this week, as of this week, is Tori Alston. Um, and he was one of the uh, appointees of, of the governor. He's a former Broward County commissioner. He's also a former student representative to the Broward School Board uh, back with, when he was a high schooler in, in the district. Um, and I think his election as chair this week really showed the power of uh, the five DeSantis appointees as a voting block um, if, if they wanted to, um, you know, ex- exert that influence going forward. Um, they prevented board member Lori Alhadef from becoming chair, something that she's been trying to do for years. Um, and, and it was Alston who was, who was nominated after and, and was voted in unanimously. And as far as his influence as chair, you know, he gets to run the meetings. He can call special meetings of the board. He gets to shape the agendas um, and, and influence things like how public comment is taken. Um, so it really is a, a role of influence. Tell me about this grand jury. Uh, can you describe what sort of power it has? 
Yeah. So again, this this grand jury uh, came in 2019. Governor Ron DeSantis um, requested that it was formed after uh, in the wake of the Parkland shooting to investigate uh, school safety and, and potential mismanagement by school districts across the state. Um, and uh, it was this you know long process of they interviewed more than 150 witnesses um, and and put out these findings over a number of months and that final report came out um, just just recently a, a couple of weeks ago and in the final report it, it really focused more on um, mismanagement that that predated the Parkland shooting um, as far as a, a bond project. Um, that dealt with school reconstruction, um, you know, an $800 million effort to renovate schools um, that took way longer, cost way more than the district initially said it would. Um, and, and this grand jury found that those five uh, board members didn't hold district officials accountable for what they said was fraud and, and mismanagement um, that left students in, in unsafe conditions and, and crumbling schools. Hmm. I'm Wilkin Brutus. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN, speaking with WLRN's reporter Kate Payne about the Broward School Board changes. Uh, 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. You can tweet us at WLRN. We also have a, a caller. Um, is it Stephanie? Yes. Hi, Stephanie. What's your question? Uh, my question is, um, well, or comment, is that I hope that a lot of the accountability will also go toward hiring. Um, there's been a process that has been undergone recently to change the entire organizational structure administratively of the school board, and that included changes to the exceptional student education. Um, these are our most vulnerable students. These are children with autism. These are children with physical disabilities. And the process has been very slapdash and a lot of the parents have felt completely cut off. So I, I hope that the accountability also goes toward hiring. Hmm. I think that's a good segue to bring in Anna Fusco, uh, Broward Teachers Union president. Anna, are you there? I am here. Good afternoon. Hey, good afternoon. Thank you for joining uh, myself and Kate Payne. Um, did you hear that phone call by chance? I did, the one that was just spoke about the ESC department. Yeah, what, what are your thoughts on that, on that statement? Well, I... I mean, we just started school. We've been in three weeks. I haven't heard a tremendous amount of um, complaints and really none in that particular department. Again, I'm not a parent in the school uh, system anymore, but I do keep in contact with our teachers and so forth. I know that there's been a, a lot of change happening here in Broward County Public Schools. Um, change is hard for a lot of people. Uh, change can be accepted by some so I would have to really get boots to the ground to see what exactly um, is the uh, specifics of what that particular uh, caller had, you know, specified. But I know that in a, a district of, you know, 14,000 educators and 35,000 employees and 250,000 students, uh, there's no way that you can make everybody happy. But I do know that every single individualized call or concern, you know, has to have a way to be taken care of and addressed. So, you know, I suggest anybody that has any specifics on anything that they find exactly what department that it's with, find out who's in charge of it, and get the necessary phone call to it, email, 
And if that doesn't work, then there has to be, you know, um, a contact to one of our new deputy soups, even our soup. But nobody should be, you know, left in the dark about anything that's going on. If there is a concern, even if it's one person and it's their their individualized concern and they deserve to have conversations, understanding, and then a solution to make sure that their concern has been taken care of. And speaking on the topics of concerns, Anna, uh, as the Broward mm-hmm. Teachers Union president, what are your main concerns about um, uh, concerning this change in the board? Well, first and foremost, they're not elected. They've been appointed. And that doesn't show representation of what Broward County residents, voters, have voted for. That's the first piece. Um, I have a concern how they were chosen. Uh, we have a, a Republican governor who only chose Republican men. And it's and I don't have a problem because they're men, because we're clearly supporting uh, candidates that are men in our district, you know, one, five, and six. It's the way he goes about with women and women's rights of his misogynistic values and views. So that's my concern. Um, we are two months um, left till we have an election day. We have uh, an election going on right now with one particular um, seat. So I found it was just really extremely, um, you know, disrespectful to the voters of Broward County Public Schools. We know that there is a, a report out there. We know that we had, um, you know, Broward County citizens that sat in that grand jury they had a lot of information thrown at them. There was a lot of discussion. It was ran for many, many, many months, and a report was turned out. But we know that that grand jury was driven solely politically from our governor and for the, the reason of why it was set and then the reasons that came out from it, which, you know, when something happens, you, you know, turn over leaves and look on the rocks, different things come out of it. And, and I respect that that happened, but... Um, politically driven, replaced with uh, five Republican men, um, starting off with, with Dan Falkenholy, by the way, is a and, and Anna, gentleman, let me, respectful. And Anna, let me get back to you on pointy. Let me yeah. get back to you on that particular port, uh, point. Uh, Kate, what are your thoughts on the perceived politics behind the grand jury? Yeah, um, I, I think the governor is a political actor. Um, and, you know, certainly there was a calculus as, as far as his decision to um, request that that grand jury was initiated back in 2019. Um, I mean, there there is so much and was so much to look into as far as what led to that massacre, which has transformed this county, transformed, you know, much of South Florida. This is such a personal issue. Um, and, and with 17 people lost, you know, the governor and, and others wanted to get down to the bottom of, of what happened there. Um, that grand jury, you know, operated, um, they were members of the public, you know, called for jury duty, working with prosecutors um, through that process, giving, you know, folks who were named in, in that final report the opportunity to, to present their case. Um, and, you know, in, in speaking to former prosecutors who have worked on other grand juries, you know, they, they think the the report speaks for itself as, as far as, it, as its findings. 
and Anna, to, to Kate's point, a lot of people are trying to get to the bottom of this. What, what would you like to see this new board address immediately or at least prioritize during this time? I think the board needs to address immediately, first and foremost, the number one situation that is um, happening in our Broward County Public Schools is um, pay, that not just teachers, support staff, all, all different levels of employees. Um, there's such a, um, you know, situational component with everybody on their pay, and especially with our educators who are paid so low, um, increases are always so low. And we know that the big bulk of it is, you know, how we are funded through Tallahassee. We understand that, but we have, you know, uh, them saying that they, they didn't agree with the referendum. So now they've got an opportunity to really dive into our budget and find the money to pay, pay for the raises. You know, the Broward Teachers Union is in a negotiations right now. We put it up in our uh, proposal May 16th, and we've been waiting. So that's one thing. And then um, take a dive into uh, the security component, since that is the main piece of the grand jury, right? So um, take a look at what's going on with our security. Is it being executed uh, the way that it's, you know, being put out? It's, it's in a change process right now. I don't know if everybody realizes that. So let them dive into that. Let them ask those hard questions. You know, those are two really big components. And I want to make it clear about the, the, the massacres that have an 18. You know who they need to blame for the massacre? The actual person that committed the murders. You, you can't come in and say you're going to blame uh, school board employees because this lunatic took action when they're showing clear evidence that he had severe issues. Severe. And we're not going to blame the employees of Broward County Public Schools of what this just complete animal did. So I know that there are concerns in every school district about safety and security and, and how our students act in our school districts and what policies are put in place and what um, resources and actions are taken to help the student. You know, we have the student in school for six hours. We have a lot of resources, a lot of different things that are done, but you have to put the onus on uh, those parents that, that raise and take care of their children. And Anna, stay with that me here. That has to happen. Um, uh, Kate, um, the, the board was entirely, um, um, the board was entirely women at one point. What's what's the makeup now? And are members of the community concerned about the change in that particular sort of diverse makeup that it once had? Mm -hmm. So now the board is five men and four women. Um, as, as I think we mentioned before, uh, the governor appointed um, five members who are all men. Um, and so the, the four elected members are, are all women. And yeah, it was just a, a couple months ago when it was entirely um, women on the board with a female superintendent. And there was a moment um, in one of the meetings this week that sort of underscored, you know, how 
quickly <laughs> the board has changed um, was the superintendent inadvertently uh, referred to the new chair, um, who is a man, uh, calling him Madam Chair and said, oh, I'm so sorry, you know, old habits. Um, and just, yeah, kind of shows how, how quickly that's changed. I think, you know, maybe um, a, another concern as, as far as um, these appointments is is their experience in education and whether they have the relevant experience um, in, in education. And that's certainly um, a question for folks going forward um, as, as they shape policy in the time that they're there. Yeah, speaking of, of shaping policy, how, how long will the new members serve and what sort of influence will they have while in office? So four of the five appointees will term out this November. Uh, so just a, a matter of months. Um, Chair Tori Alston, his term is uh, runs through 2024. Um, and as far as their influence, you know, we're already seeing it in, in them um, electing Chair Alston. Um, and, you know, coming up uh, later this month and in a couple weeks, they'll be taking a vote on the budget. Um, we'll certainly have, have influence over that conversation. Um, the county just approved uh, a new referendum um, to help boost teacher pay and school security, uh, mental health initiatives, uh, so they may have a say on that as well. Um, and, and as Anna Fusco mentioned earlier, um, Chair Alston, before he was on the board, um, was opposed to that referendum uh, personally, but he said this week that he'll, you know, in, in his position now as, as the chair, implement uh, the will of the voters on that. And what about Broward Schools Superintendent Vicki uh, Cartwright? Sorry, I mispronounced her name. Uh, what, what does the change mean for her? Um, it's <laughs> been an, an incredible amount of, you know, transition as far as the board members that she's working with. Um, and the board is currently working on her initial job evaluation. Um, and I believe that's due uh, next week uh, that board members will be will be making those findings as, as far as her performance. Um, it's my understanding that the new board members won't be a part of that process because the period of time that the board is, is looking at for her performance um, has already passed, you know, be- before they were on the board. Um, but that's, that's certainly a question of, of what these new board members make of her and her performance going forward. Right. It's going to be interesting uh, moving forward. Anna, um, this is somewhat of a broad question to ask you. Uh, what are your thoughts on the politics of our school board right now? Do you think it will eventually subside or do you think it'll get even worse? Well, it's going to subside after the November election. And I, I mean, the... The one appointee that came on, Dan, that was appointed when Dr. Osgood became a senator, he's been he's been great. Now we have the four that have come on, and they all gave very, um, you know, strong, passionate, you know, speeches of what it meant for them to be there and what their intentions are to be there. And they made it clear for the students, for the parents, for the community, for the taxpayers, and for the employees. So um, I, I am a, always been that type of person and firm believer that we have to hear what people are saying, what they're presenting out there, and, and, and expect them to follow through on what they say and what they're going to do and, and work with that. And that's, you know, I shook hands with every one of them. I didn't get to meet Ryan. It was so many people. And that was, you know, the conversation I had with them, you know, 
looking forward to um, watching them, everything they said that, they, that they're going to do and do what's right for the Broward County Public Schools. So that's, you know, that's what I expect. And to keep politics out, and it's a nonpartisan position, and that's what they have to do. I mean, it is kind of hard to, to see it as it is because it's five Republican men that were appointed by the governor and four that were taken out right when we're in the middle of an election. So how can you not say it's political? It clearly is, but those gentlemen clearly said it's not what it was going to be. So um, we all have to just, you know, give that positive grace and, and respect that what they say and that they're going to do it and hope that they do. Anna Fusco is Broward Teachers Union president, and Kate Payne is WLRN's education reporter. Thank you both for having on, or for being on. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank- Still to come, a historic hotel is returning to a quirky city in Palm Beach County, giving economic hope to the residents. Call us with your thoughts at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. I'm Wilkin Brutus. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN, 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. The historic Gulfstream Hotel in Lake Worth Beach opened in 1925, but has been vacant for nearly two decades. But now residents in the Palm Beach County city are celebrating after landing a $104 million project that officials say could generate hundreds of full-time jobs and pump millions into its struggling economy. All in favor? Aye. Aye. Thank you, everybody. We all know that we want a place to, to enjoy, to be part of our community, where friends can come and visit and stay, We don't want the blight anymore. But it took a series of very emotional debates where members of the public, be it local business owners and working class residents of the city, spoke out passionately in favor of the project. But why? Once you make a commitment, honor it. Once you said you were for this project, a number of you went behind the public eye and did everything in your power to make it go away. That's not the way we want our city ran. What do you think about the plans to revive the hotel? Are you for or against it? Uh, Join the conversation. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Joining us now is George Million. Uh, He covers Lake Worth Beach and Boynton Beach for Palm Beach County or for the Palm Beach Post. (laughs) George, thank you for, uh, for joining us. Absolutely, Wilkin. How you doing? Man, it's, it's great to hear your voice. It's been a while. <laughs> yes, sir. Now, George, every time I step foot in Lake Worth Beach, I'm reminded of how quirky uh, this seaside town is from the artsy, hippie-like character of the place to its uh, high concentration of historic cottages. Now, Lake Worth Beach definitely stands out from a lot of the cities in Palm Beach County, but this diversity has suffered economically, as you know. Uh, before we get into the meat of the Gulfstream hotel deal. Can you describe why residents there were so passionate about this project at the meetings? Yeah, I, I think there was a really, a, a, you know, especially two groups are very passionate about this. No, no doubt the uh, downtown business owners who are, you know, mainly made up of mom and pop uh, type of businesses. There's not a lot of, you know, a big 
uh, brand type businesses or none really in the Lake Avenue type area. So, you know, a lot of those people, they they haven't really had an economic driver uh, since the Gulfstream closed in 2005. So certainly those people have been lobbying, the, the business owners have been lobbying for this for a long time. Uh, you know, there, there's a study out that says that they'll, seven over $7 million will be spent on these businesses. So obviously that, that's something that they want. And then there's also a lot of people, a lot of people that have been in the area for a long time that remember the Gulfstream that that were married there or had their children married there, or, you know, uh, celebrated some major life event there. And there's a lot of nostalgia uh, connected to the to the uh, to the Gulfstream. So, uh, you know, I think, I'll, I'll, you know, those two things certainly um uh, you know, there's a lot of passion around those those two issues, and and you hear a lot about those two things when you you know people talk about the Gulfstream. And, and where is the hotel in in relation to the downtown area? It, it's a very far east on on Lake Avenue, it's basically across the you know the water. Um, it, so it's uh, it, it's not far. It's you know it's walkable distance uh, to the downtown area, just a few blocks. So that's basically what uh, what's expected. That the, the the visitors that stay there will walk down and have you know lunch uh, on Lake Avenue and and maybe get a haircut or whatever else they they may need to do. Hmm. And so obviously the the surrounding businesses seek to benefit from this hotel, to say the least. Um, at last week's meeting, people showed up in person. Uh, they, they sent in comment cards. But when did the project start picking up steam? Well, I really think it started picking up steam when Amrit and Amy Gill, who are the developers that are St. Louis based developers, when they got involved, uh, it, you know, it, it got people excited. You know, you really got to give the Gills a lot of credit. They, they knew how to work this project uh, in a lot of different angles, including the PR angle. They really got the community behind them. They, 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 they told the community that they needed an ordinance that changed the height uh, limitations uh, in the area of the Gulfstream. And there was a referendum on it. And it was overwhelmingly passed. And uh, I think a lot of that had to do with the guilds. They've done a really good job. Uh, keeping the the community excited about this project, and really, I reason I think the reason why those uh, meetings were so packed had a lot to do with the gills and and you know they're bringing the community together and getting them excited and, and supportive of the of the project. I'm Wilkin Brutus. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm speaking with George Millian from the Palm Beach Post about the soon-to-be-renovated historic Gulfstream Hotel in Lake Worth Beach in Palm Beach County. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. You can also tweet us at WLRN. Now, George, um, there was definitely contentious debate surrounding the deal. Uh, City commissioners unanimously approved uh, an economic incentive package for the $104 million project. Who is footing the bill and how does it impact the city? Well, it depends on a little bit on who you ask. Christopher McVoy, who had, uh, you know, uh, voiced some opposition, to, certainly to uh, giving money to the developers. He'll tell you that's about $12 million. And he bases this on a study that was done previously, I believe, by the city that will eventually uh, end up costing around $12 million uh, for the taxpayer. Uh, you know, there's a lot of people that will tell you that it's a lot less than that. We do know that the CRA a couple of weeks ago uh 
you know, uh, provided $3 million in incentives. The, the city itself has provided utility fee incentive, you know, fee, uh, t- taken away fees and this and that. So, you know, there's several million dollars involved here. Uh, of course, the, 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 the expectation is that that investment will come back to the city in droves in, t- in, uh, in terms of the economic benefits that this project is going to have in the short and long term. So, um, you know, you, no shortage of people that tell you whatever the, 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 the cost was, well worth the, the price. Yeah, coming back uh, and drove to the tune of perhaps 688% return on its investment, uh, according to a developmental impact study. Um, now, there were critics of the deal, of course, heading into last week's meeting. Three commissioners expressed uh, their concerns about giving millions of dollars of public funds used as uh, financial incentives uh, to that St. Louis-based developer. What issues were they raising? Well, you know, let's be honest. Lake Worth Beach is one of the poorest cities in Palm Beach County. 25% of the city lives uh at the poverty uh, rate or, or line or lower. So there's no shortage of need in, in Lake Worth Beach. And I think what that's basically what these commissioners were concerned about. You know, are we giving money to very well-heeled developers where much of our population, uh, there's, there's just no shortage of stuff that's needed in Lake Worth Beach and, and, and people that need the help. Uh, you know, one, one thing that uh, Christopher McVoy pointed out that they're giving uh, the, uh, the the Gulf Stream some, uh, they're waiving some uh, utility fees while the city itself, uh, the residents are expecting a 20% increase because of natural gas prices, a 20% increase on, on their electric bills. And, uh, you know, my boy would tell you that, you know, doing that at a time when you're giving developers this kind of money is just not right. So a lot of this had to do with, uh, you know, these commissioners concerned about where this money was going, you know, um, could it be spent in in, in a better way? And, uh, you know, kind of taking a deep dive into that and looking at this is not a rich city. You know, they can't just be throwing money around. And and that I believe that was the the core of their hesitancy is this money being spent correctly. Right. And and I've noticed increased tension between some of the commissioners on the Lake Worth Beach, uh, between the commissioners and the Lake Worth Beach CRA uh, at a public hearing. The vice chair, uh, the vice chair of the CRA even accused the commission's of the commission of trying to sabotage the deal behind the scenes. What's the relationship like between the, the CRA and uh, commission? Well, it's uh, not really very good. It appears when you consider that the commission, the city commission, three members, Christopher uh, McVoy, Kim Stokes and Ronaldo Diaz have moved to look to see if the, the, the commission can now become the governing board of the CRA. Uh, as you probably know, Wilkin, in, in, in most cities that have CRAs in, in Palm Beach County, the city commission is the CRA. That's not the way it works in, in Lake Worth Beach. The city commission appoints CRA members who work as an independent body. So, you know, what the CRA does doesn't always, uh, you know, it's not approved, let's say, by the members of the commission. And that has caused some uh you know some real uh some tension. Uh, divide here right. yeah uh, and, quite a bit of tension and i have to interrupt you here uh the project will hopefully start soon and will uh the sort of completion date is um 2025 george million covers the lake worth beach and boynton beach for the palm beach post george thank you so much for your time absolutely welcome nice to talk to you again my man 
50 years ago, the first boats full of Haitian refugees reached the shores of Florida. And this set in motion a new chapter in American history. The story that shaped how the immigration system works in the United States today. We have effectively lost control of our borders. The public now thinks, uh, and very strongly, that uh, something has to be done about this problem. Do something for Haitian people. Give them rights. Give them freedom. Set them free from jail. The immigration and detention system that we have in this country was shaped by events that happened more than anywhere else in Florida in the 1970s and the 1980s. And specifically, events that played out in Miami with the arrival of a new wave of Haitian and Cuban immigrants. You flee in a dictatorship and you came to a country seeking freedom, the next time they just throw you in jail again. We always were different. I mean, not because we're better or nothing, but we, we, they gave us that status. In a new podcast from WLRN News called Detention by Design, we take a deep and critical look at how it all played out and how it's still playing out. Over the last year especially, we've seen a large increase in the number of migrant vessels that we've been spotting out there. I was horrified by the breadth of the racism that I saw at that time. I was really horrified. It's an experiment for the, for the federal government and for the immigration service in, in how to hold tens of thousands of people. We didn't anticipate it. Our laws were not designed to accommodate three or 4,000 refugees coming here per day. Detention by Design from WLRN News. Coming to your favorite podcast app September 7th. Funding for Detention by Design was made possible by the Shepherd Broad Foundation in honor of its founder, whose immigration story included detention at age 14, but also the warm embrace of the Miami community. Finally on the Roundup, the story of America's immigration detention nightmare did not start at the Mexican border. It started on Florida's shores more than 50 years ago. It was during a time where virtually no immigrants were held in detention. WLRN, WLRN News' podcast, Detention by Design, is a six-episode series that would take you through the arrival of Haitian and Cuban migrants by boat in the 1970s and 1980s, and how it shaped the immigration and detention system that we have in this country. Subscribe and listen to the podcast when it launches at WLRN.org podcast forward slash detention pod. That would do it for the South Florida Roundup. It's produced by Natu Twe. Our engagement editor is Katie Cohen. Our interim managing editor is Katie Munoz. Jessica Bateman is the senior editor of news. Christine DiMatte is the interim newscast editor. Matu Sanchez is digital editor. The director of radio operations and show's technical supervisor is Peter J. Mayers. Richard Ives answers phones. I'm Wilkin Brutus. Thanks for calling and listening. And remember, stay hydrated. WLRN Public Media.